Don't leave a legacy. Learn to live a legacy. Live the life that you want to live because it's a choice. It doesn't matter what circumstance you're in, your attitudes towards it is a choice. And if you live your best life by having the right attitudes towards life, then in actual fact, you inspire others just by having the right attitude. So subsequently, you leave the legacy by first living the legacy. And then unfortunately was involved in quite a serious accident in 2000 in the second Gulf, which rather than being a medic, required me to call for a medic. I was shipped off the battlefield on a stretcher. I was led back to, flown back to Germany. Jay says, you've got 35 years experience so far of learning how to get by. He said, whatever you're suffering right now is a temporary problem. I've got to be honest with you, Ian, that is still the most painful day of my life. Beyond my medical discharge from the army and two years, almost two years in hospital. Fuel your dreams, ignite your inspiration. Join us and feel at home here at Fearless Inspiration. Never has anyone on the planet had more of an opportunity than right now. We have the means to communicate with almost every other person on the planet. Choose what you say to people wisely and then share your message with the world. To understand that life is a journey, not a destination. And to be able to wake up every day and to put your arms out to the sides and say, well, I'm not touching wood today, so I'm having a good day. And then anything else beyond that is a bonus. And the humility that we were witnessing as we wore berries, uh, rifles were slung at our side, we kicked footballs, we played football with kids in the streets and we started to build a relationship. And it was so interesting to watch as to how quickly barriers just disappear once you identify with a common identity and a common purpose, a common interest. And today's guest is Jay Allen, who was an advanced trauma medic in the army before becoming a motivational business speaker, helping create jobs and to help business owners at a zero. How should they have been and where are you calling from? Ian, thanks very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm calling from Warrington in Cheshire. Cool. The opening icebreaker question is, can you tell me something that you just love doing? You're both good at and it's a passion. It drips out of you. For me, supporting and empowering business owners to either think bigger or to achieve bigger still is something that I fell into probably about 10 years ago now. And I eat, sleep and breathe it. It's part of who I am now. It's more than a job. It's more of a vocation. Beautiful. Now, I've got a bit more on your journey. But uh, first of all, can we go straight to the person who is your biggest inspiration, either currently alive or from the past? Sure. I get inspiration from many different people, past and present, but I think probably throughout my life, the one person that's been such a key influencer to me personally um, would be my nan. My nan was my surrogate mum for a long time. I, I lived with my nan from when I was about 12 and a half, 13 years old, and she became pretty much my, like I say, my surrogate mum. And for a woman who lost her own husband very early on in life, and then still managed to hold down a full-time job and bring up three kids. I never ever complain about stuff, but forever grateful of the opportunity that it had presented it um, has been such an influence in my life to be able to say, it doesn't matter about the hand that you've been dealt, it depends on how you play it. That's really inspiring. Wow. And what was she called, just so we know her name? Yeah, sure. My, my nan's name was called Joy. And in all fairness, she was a joy to know and she brought joy to whoever she spoke to. Where when she walked into a room, people lit up when, she saw, when they saw her. Um, I only lost her last year and it was such a blow. Oh dear, sad to hear that. Right, so a quick summary of your journey from the bit of research I did. 
and you, st you studied social sciences and education. Then you were an advanced trauma medic in the British Army for 12 years. In between, you were then a strategic lead for transformation for a business working with lots of different uh, areas, such as emergency services and LGBT community. And then you have come through to be an international motivational speaker and business coach, like uh, you said at the start. And you've also set up your own four businesses. And on top of that, you've got your podcast, um, the Add a Zero podcast, and you've written three or four books. So that's quite a, a journey. So I'm guessing there's various things inspired you through that. Anywhere you'd like to start on, on what inspired you along that journey? Yeah, okay. Thanks very much for doing the research. That's really, it's quite uh, resounding to be able to hear hear back from somebody else the things that they've picked up on who you are and what you've done. I never intended to be a soldier. I never, I was never one of those kids that went to school and said, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be Rambo. I went through school not really knowing what I was going to do when I left school, but got just enough qualifications to go to college. And then I studied, like you say, social sciences, which could apply to many different things, really. And just enough qualifications to go to uni, but not really sure as to what I was going to do. And it was only when I was in uni, probably in my second year, that I realised all of the qualifications and training I was getting was pointing me in a direction that I probably didn't want to go in after I'd finished uni. And I understood that I was heading towards this social sciences, social work type role. And whilst I've got much admiration for social workers, I realised that it was probably not the route that I wanted to take for the rest of my life. And so yeah. when the army came to town at the end of the second year, beginning of the third year of uni, looking for postgrads to be able to invite into a like an accelerated promotion scheme within the army, I took a good look at it and realised that it was probably a, a lot more exciting and, and opportunistic than it was being a social worker in inner city Nottingham, whereas where, where I was doing my training. So almost without a, a second thought, I thought, you know, three years for Queen and Country, I'll do my bit for the army and then perhaps I'll come back to social work with a, a little bit more mature head on my shoulders. So I signed yeah. the paperwork pretty much pretty much without really thinking about what that might involve. Because at the time when I joined, um, other than Northern Ireland, we'd been to the Falklands, but, but other than Northern Ireland, there wasn't really a lot happening. And yes. then obviously very quickly after that, the first Gulf kicked off. And then we went to Bosnia and Kosovo and East Timor and Sierra Leone and back to the Gulf, uh, Gulf War, the sequel. It became wow. really busy and operational. And I didn't realise as to how much I loved being a medic and being there on the front line supporting other infantry troops to be able to be a non-combatant, but to be able to support people in a really, really ferocious environment. And I got loads from it. I really enjoyed my job. It, everything was great about it. I was really inspired by some of the people that put life and limb on the line for the belief of Queen and Country and the mission that we were being given. And then unfortunately was involved in quite a serious accident in 2000 in the second Gulf, which rather than being a medic, required me to call for a medic. I was shipped off the battlefield on a stretcher. I was led back, to, flown back to Germany, which is where the regiment had been based. Then I was stabilised back in Germany. And then I was flown back to the UK to start my rehabilitation. And although my diagnosis determined that I was likely to make a good, if not full rehabilitation for my physical injuries, about three and a half, four months into my rehabilitation, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and started to have flashbacks. I got it really quite badly. I was sectioned under the Mental Health Act for my own protection because they said that I, they were fearful of me potentially having suicidal thoughts. I spent eight months in hospital on suicide watch. And I didn't realise, it's the first real time that I recognised the strength of a mental health issue can have on physical well-being. Even though I was yeah, a medic, yeah. I always presumed that, you know, if you put a cast on a broken leg, it would fix. 
And what I subsequently found was even though the physiotherapist was doing all the possibly could to try and help me recover physically, because my mental health wasn't well, I wasn't making any physical progress in recovery. And it took being able to completely stop the physical work to work on the mental health problems and to overcome and learn how to resolve those. And then subsequently, my physical health recovered very, very quickly after we'd fixed the mental blocks. But it did determine that I meant I was going to be medically retired from the service and allowed me to go off and do all of the things that I've done since. Wow, that is quite a story. And for anybody that's listening that's got their own mental blocks, you know, possibly not as strong as yours, is there anything you could share that in terms of, you know, there's various methodologies and things you can do and maybe it is just doing your own work somehow internally, but anything, any light you can shed on what enabled you to succeed in the mental aspect of the work you had to do? Ian, that's a great question. I'm so delighted you've been kind enough to invite me to be able to share something on that because it's so important right now, particularly in an environment where people's mental health is being stretched and strained so much with regards to what's happened in 2020 and beyond as we move into a post-COVID era. The first thing I would say to anybody is it doesn't matter where you are right now. It doesn't matter what circumstances you're in right now. If you just look back on your life at whatever age you are now, in my case, certainly when I was first diagnosed with this post-traumatic stress disorder, I was 35 at the time. And one of the things that my psychotherapist said to me, which which really started to resound with me, is Jay says, you've got 35 years experience so far of learning how to get by. He said, whatever you're suffering right now is a temporary problem in 34 and a half years of otherwise quite a good life. He said, so you need to understand that everything that's happening right now has a conclusion to come to it. It's a temporary position. And the next thing you have to do is to, one, acknowledge the fact that if you don't want to be here for the rest of your life, if you don't want to be in this circumstance right now, that one, you need to address the fact and acknowledge the fact that there is something that's preventing you from going back to or moving forwards towards something more positive and two, yes. reach out and speak to people because there is an abundance of help and support for anybody and everybody out there. You've just got to be willing to be able to speak to somebody. It doesn't matter whether you've got to know, well, I don't know who's to talk to. I don't know what's to say. Simply reach out and speak to somebody and say, I'm not feeling really well right now. Can you help me? Because ironically, there's this innate urge in every human being to offer and provide help and assistance. That if you use the words, I'm not feeling really well right now, can you help me? There's almost not another soul alive that wouldn't say, sure, how can I help you? What do you want? And it starts the conversation. So please, if there's anybody out there that needs to be able to reach out today and say, can you help me? Then please feel free and capable of doing so. And likewise, for any listener that's out there and heard this and doesn't feel that they're in a a mental health anguish right now, if somebody ever issues those words, never be too busy simply to listen, because sometimes listening is the first key to being able to enable somebody to unlock the demons that they're suffering in order to be able to move forward. Mm, That's really powerful. And I'm guessing, you know, and sometimes people who may be in that kind of situation of of suffering, you know, it it is such a, a mental prison cell that they don't you know, the prospect of speaking to somebody about it seems so fast-fetched, they're less likely to do it. You know, thank you. That's added a lot of value. Totally swept away by that bit of, of your journey. And so after you were rehabilitated and you were looking to new pastures, well, there's another dramatic story, I think, where you had nearly lost your sight and, and you say on your website that that's where you knew you had a book inside you, but you'd never got around to doing it. And it was that kind of wake-up call that 
made the book come out, which was the title Battlefield to Boardroom. And I think you're, you're mentioning in there where people are under real hard situations in the army and, and they overcome you know, quite big obstacles. It's kind of translating some of that into businesses. So yeah, could you tell us what inspired, you know, maybe a bit more about the event or and what, how the book came out of you and, and everything else? Sure, thank you very much. So at the time, I was still, it was my last ever salaried role before I went back into uh, self-employment, but I was working for a large corporate company based in the West Midlands. And I was delivering a training course to a group of SME business owners in Sheffield on a Friday morning. It was a three-hour presentation. It was called Why Now? It was all, all around why now is the right time to be able to kickstart your business. And we offered some great values to people. It was a free-to-attend event with the premise that if you want some help to be able to do so, we've got this package available to be able to help people kickstart the business. And it's attracted lots and lots of people over the country. I think we delivered Why Now? to something in the region of about seven or 8,000 different business owners. And in this audience, there was about 35, 40 people that had come along for this morning's presentation. And at the end of it, we always do a Q&A. We always do a, have you got any questions at all about anything? Ask it now and let's see if we can provide some value here and right here and now. And there was a gentleman towards the back of the audience called PJ Patel, bless him, who continually, he put his hand up. But then when he came to him, he said, oh, no, I said, I'll, I'll ask my question last. And every time that I asked, you know, PJ, what's your question? He says, oh, I'd prefer to ask my question last. Um, so somebody else got the question. And finally, there was no other questions to ask. I says, PJ, now's your time. You know, I, I hope that the finale was worth the wait. How can I help you? And he said, Jay, he says, what's wrong with your eye? And I went, what? I says, oh, nothing. He says, you keep rubbing your eye. He says, what's wrong? I says, oh, I'm probably a little bit tired. I've got something in it, or maybe. He says, Jay, says, forgive me, he says, but I'm an ophthalmologist. He says, and I run two optometry surgeries here in Sheffield. He said, if you were tired, you'd rub both your eyes. He says, there's something wrong with your eye. He says, can I have a quick look? And in front of 35, 40 people, he stands up, walks to the front, pulls out his pocket, one of these little ophthalmology torch type things, and opens my eyelid, and he's busy shining this torch in me. I am. I'm a little bit astounded by what's happening. And he says, Jay, says, I don't want to alarm you. He says, but I think you've got quite a serious problem going on in your eye. He says, I've got a prescription pad in my briefcase. He says, if I write you a prescription, he says, I want you to go straight to A&E. He says, I think you've got something quite serious going on. Um, and all of a sudden, this joyful, motivated trainer for the day suddenly became a patient that went, oh, bugger, there's a problem here. What's going yeah. on? Um, and he wrote this prescription out and he said, if you've got someone to drive you, I think you ought to have somebody drive you to the hospital. Um, and I didn't. So he ended up organising for his sons to drive my car, to drive me from Sheffield to the hospital. We got to the hospital probably about two o'clock. Now I was having emergency laser surgery by Hoppus Force to save a detached retina in my left eye. Don't worry, I've made notes of today's top 10 hits of inspiration. Hang on to the end to hear the summary. Wow, that is quite a story. And the chances for him to, well, synchronicity for him to be there and for him to have had the confidence to do what he did. Absolutely. I mean, the surgeon said to me when they were operating, if the ophthalmologist hadn't been in your audience and spotted that, if you'd driven home and just thought it was something in your eyes, you'd have probably woken up blind in one eye tomorrow morning. Wow. No, thank you for sharing that. So, and that's an amazing story. And I'm guessing that acted as you somehow, you know, that made you think, I'm going to write this book. They always say there's a book in everybody, don't they? They always say that, you know, we've all got a story to tell. 
And so many people had told me that my story from the army and then subsequently getting into the business was sufficient to be able to, to write a book. And I always presumed that writing a book, you did as your memoirs, you know, on, on a beach somewhere in your late 60s somewhere. I always said, yeah, yeah, one day, one day. And then all of a sudden this, this surgery came along that when they operated, as part of the surgery, they end up having to put drops in both your eyes and then saying, well, you can't watch TV and you can't operate a computer and you certainly can't drive or use a mobile phone or anything that's got a backlight to it for about three or four weeks. Well, I love reading, but I can't even read because you can't use your eyes. I've got an Audible account, but I couldn't work the buttons on the phones to work out what I was listening. So I was going to be sat there for three or four weeks doing nothing. And ironically, I'm not a person to do nothing. I'm always on the go and doing something. I've usually got three or four things on the go at any one time. And within 24, 48 hours, I was so bored that I thought, ah, I could write a book. And everyone says, well, well, how did you write if you couldn't see? And the simple fact is I bought a dictaphone and I spoke 38,500 words into a dictaphone. And then I gave the audio files to an audio typist and said, do me a favor, turn that into a book. And four weeks later, Battlefield to Boardroom was being presented to the publishers and came out about three weeks, uh, three months after that. Yeah, it was the forced silence and this, you know, retreat from normal life that allowed that to come out rather than the, well, you know, it was partly the shock of probably of the event. But yeah, it was more, yeah, I didn't expect that. You've been driven to, to have that space. That's beautiful. For me, it's always taught me that we are so busy in the life of business. I always say to people, are you in the business of business or are you in the busyness of business? Because we can all be too caught up in the here and now. And it's only when we start to do what I call diary blocking and block some time out for thinking, allocate some time either daily or at least weekly to be able to say that's uninterrupted thinking time. Because ironically, the more that you allow yourself times to stop and think and catch up, the better ideas you have, the better results happen and, you know, and, and books occur, which in the last, what, seven years, it's sold about 13, nearly 14,000 copies. So it's done all right for itself. Wow, that's amazing. And I, so I didn't have time to get hold of it before our meeting today. I'm just going to be quite quick setting this one up. But uh, yeah, I look forward to looking, looking at that. Now, I love inspiring events that somehow spontaneously bring people together and just make people feel more on the same team. Is there anything, an event or a person or something that you can think of that you found inspiring in that kind of space that brought people together? It's a great question. And whilst I could think of half a dozen at least, the one that really springs to mind is perhaps one that's a little bit more alarming and maybe not what your listeners have heard before, because it goes back to the Second Gulf War just before I was injured, really. Because prior to the political decisions to go and remove Saddam from office, the Americans had deployed in force on the boundaries, awaiting that political decision to, to go into Iraq. And there was nearly a quarter of a million Americans deployed, ready for deployment. And yet, right towards the very end, just before the political decision was made, it was determined that a 7,800 British contingent would lead the invasion, followed by almost a quarter of a million Americans. And nearly 8,000 Brits got halivacked into position ahead of quarter of a million Americans, almost to the dissatisfaction of the Americans that had been sat there for weeks waiting to be able to go and do what they... Why are they going before us? They should be last on the list. They were late to arrive type stuff. And what I witnessed was the Americans deployed in force with M16 assault rifles and, and a mission to be able to recover 
the Iraq, uh, Iraq from the um, perils of Saddam Hussein and to free the Iraqi people. That was the, the mission that we were sent out to do. And even though the Brits deployed and we went out ahead of them, we went out with footballs and berries. And, and you, might, you might be familiar at the time with the press coverage that said, we're going to win over the hearts and minds of the local families in America, in Iraq. And we're going to be able to rebuild Iraq from within. And I witnessed the hostility that was met by the Iraqis and the Americans because they turned up in force with bombs and guns and a gung-ho attitude and the humility that we were witnessing as we wore berries, uh, rifles were slung at our side, we kicked footballs, we played football with kids in the streets and we started to build a relationship. And it was so interesting to watch as to how quickly barriers just disappear once you identify with a common identity and a common purpose, a common interest with the person that you're trying to be able to, to work with. All of the facade that's around the male dominance of stuff just depletes, depletes away once you can find a common interest and start kicking a football around and, and lose a few goals in order to be able to say that there's some common ground here. We all like Man United or Liverpool or Everton or whatever. And before you know it, there were kids running down the streets with football football shirts on screaming, Man you, Man you, Liverpool! As opposed oh, to the, the M16 rifles thundering through town and people closing their shutters. And for me, that was a really poignant mark, marks to say, there's always more than one way to resolve a situation. And it's usually by stopping and looking and considering, as opposed to just rushing in there and thinking that you've got the answer. Wow. Finding that, that thing that just softens on both sides to go, you know, wherever possible to lead with that, that inspires me. That's what I'm starting out on this journey to try and that intangible thing to kind of celebrate that. So thank you for adding, you know, to my learning there. It's something that we can take through every different aspect of business that says, you know, rather than meeting it with a hurdle, what do I need to do? Which, which seat do I need to sit in? What, what do, how do I need to look at this differently in order to be able to find the lesson within it and help us move forward? Yes, that's a good way to look at any point. So for people who have got quite low self-belief and forgotten how amazing they are and forgotten how to wave their own flag, is anything in particular you can say to those guys to pick them up? Um, I think we all go through ebbs and, ebbs and flows. I think, you know, regardless of the fact that I'm here on this interviews today and fully motivated and, and keen to be able to share a story and grateful to be able to do so. Like I say, I've been through some, I've been through the mill a few times along the way. Eight months in a hospital crying because you're awake wasn't the proudest moment of my life. But in all fairness, one of the moments that helped shape who I am today. And it's only when we can look at things in context as opposed to believe that wherever we are now is all encompassing and that this is forever. To be able to just stop for a second, just do a little bit of breathing work, just simply stop and fill your lungs with air and just remember that every single six or seven or eight seconds we can do that and it gives us another chance. So instead yes. of being caught up in the moment, simply stop and take a long, deep breath, probably close your eyes at the same time and just take that long, deep breath and hold it for as long as you possibly can and then slowly release it and understand that you've now been given another chance. And all we need to do is to be able to say, one breath at a time, I can attack this monster. Um, you know, they always say, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And simply, it doesn't matter how big the problem is. If you just take it down into bite-sized chunks and say, what can I do today? Don't set yourself too big a targets to start off with. Simply turn around and say, I'm here, I'm alive, I'm surviving today. And do you know what? Today, that's good enough. And tomorrow, I'm going to be here and survive and thrive, and I'm going to eat breakfast. And then the following day, I'm going to eat, survive, and, and have breakfast and get dressed. 
and simply set yourself some tiny little micro goals to understand that when you look back on this in years to come, you'll be able to tell your kids or your grandkids or your friends or your colleagues, guess what? This breathing stuff, it gives you another chance you'll have to try it. Thank you. That's a really good answer. One of the other questions, but I think it may be a similar answer. How would you keep a balance between being inspired but staying grounded? And uh, would you, you'd say the same, same answer probably for that, would you? Yeah, very much so. For every high, there's going to be a low. So don't ever expect the highs to last forever. And don't ever expect the lows to last forever. It's to understand that life is a journey, not a destination. And to be able to wake up every day and to put your arms out to the sides and say, well, I'm not touching wood today, so I'm having a good day. And then anything else beyond that is a bonus. Brilliant. I've had to go on and off with the gratitude journal, but I can see you are, you are definitely living it <laughs> more than me. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, can I share one quick other thing with you? Yes. So many people talk about leaving a legacy. And I want us to challenge that concept and say, don't leave a legacy. Learn to live a legacy. Live the life that you want to live because it's a choice. It doesn't matter what circumstance you're in. Your attitudes towards it is a choice. And if you live your best life by having the right attitudes towards life, then in actual fact, you inspire others just by having the right attitude that subsequently you leave the legacy by first living the legacy. I really like that. Definitely. Yeah, that will be in the show notes as, as the main quote. Definitely live a legacy. Now, your current challenge is the add a zero one where you're aiming to aid and support a million business owners to significantly and sustainably grow their businesses and possibly even add a zero to their personal disposable income. So that's quite a, a big challenge and it's at the heart of your ethical coaching company, My True North. What, what's inspired you to do that? And can you tell us a bit more? Sure. So my first ever business of my own, I cheated. When I left working for corporate, I'd earned a fair amount of money. I'd got some savings and I decided that I was going to set up a business. And rather than setting up on day one with a, a laptop and a mobile phone and a, and a good idea, I cheated and bought an existing business. There was a business right. that wasn't too far away from where I live that had been operating for 14 years. It had employed four members of staff. And unfortunately, the owner had recently been diagnosed with terminal cancer and didn't want to have to lay anybody off whilst he went through chemotherapy. And so I put the business up for sale. And the premise was that I was happy to be able to buy the business. He was happy to sell it, quite frankly, for about 60 or 65% of what it was actually valued at on the premise that I, I refused to take two works to lay anybody off. I had to be willing to take four members of staff on and give them a career that he'd hoped to give them to do so. And I bought this business and then made this premise, look, I'm, I'm not looking to run a small business. I'm really keen to be able to find out what the parameters are of what we can achieve. Who's with me? Can we get big or go home? And I'm going to put some cash in. But in, in view of doing that, I want people that are with me that are going to go on this accelerated journey to see if we can grow and, and accelerate the speed of growth of the business. And three of them said, oh, thank God for that. We've been looking forward to this for a while. And a fourth yes. one, a little bit of an older gentleman said, what do you mean I've got to stop playing golf on Wednesdays? Um, <laughs> perhaps it's about time I retired. And he left naturally. And the three and myself got our heads into gear and determined as to what the business was going to look like. And over a period of about four and a half, not quite five years, we went from four of us to 22 of us. Uh, we grew quite rapidly. Really? Um, however, during that journey, we did go from 17 back to 10. And I ended up having to make seven people redundant late in the year, just before Christmas. I've got to be honest with you, Ian. 
that is still the most painful day of my life. Beyond my medical discharge from the army and two years, almost two years in hospital, laying somebody else off and knowing that the decisions that you've made have now impacted somebody else's life was the most painful thing I've ever had to do. But we had to lay seven people off because we were suppliers to Woolworths in 2008 when Woolworths went Pete Tong. And we got this phone call at about six o'clock on a Friday night from Deloitte to say, by the way, you're not going to get paid. Um, no. And at the time, Woolworths owed us almost quarter of a million quid. And I just didn't have the funds to be able to, to maintain seven new salaries without this contract coming in. Thankfully, we recovered. It took us about two years to be able to overcome and get over that. But thankfully, we recovered from it. And, and like I say, a few years later, I sold the business as a going concern. But immediately afterwards, I said, before I take another business on, before I employ another person, I need to understand what mistakes did I make that put seven other people's lives at risk and livelihoods at risk? And how do I overcome that so I never, ever, ever have to lay anybody else off ever again? So I looked at how to de-risk my own business and some of the enthusiastic errors or naive errors I've made by being a new, new person business owner and some of the things that perhaps I ought to have done and didn't know and now do. But then subsequently, how does Woolworths go bust? You know, at the time that we signed a contract with them, they were doing 4 billion turnover a year. They employed 37,000 people that all got made redundant. I felt guilty with seven. Whoever had to lay 37,000 people off must be suicidal almost. So I bought the data from Deloitte to look at what caused the breakup and damage and failure of Woolworths, one of the big high street brands of the 70s and 80s. And I was astounded to see some of the problems that I'd identified in my own business were also present in the likes of Woolworths. And they hadn't learned the lessons and suffered the consequences a million times more and more significant than me. And I came up with this conclusion. This can't be just applicable to me and Woolworths. Other people must be suffering the same problems by not knowing some of the things that we ought to have in business and we don't. So I sat about, at the time, I'd been invited to be a guest lecturer on the MBA program for UCAN University. um, And I've been teaching entrepreneurship as part of the MBA program. So I I got access to a group of really keen researchy type students on their second year of the MBA. And collectively, we started looking at what causes businesses to fail. Because there's so many people out there that are keen to be able to sell their their business success blueprint. Um, And don't get me wrong, I've, I've got no qualms that some of this works. But when I've looked into a blueprint, what you often find is this is how we've made it work. And they don't have the answers to, and this is how you could make it work. Because they're busy telling you about all the things that they've done and all of the excitement that they've got and the results that they've got, but they don't necessarily have the competence, knowledge, and experience as to how to translate that into you and your business, particularly if your business isn't exactly the same as what they're doing. So rather than looking at success, and, and they always say success leaves clues, I was of the belief, well, well, failure leaves clues too. So let's just look at what causes failure and how to avoid it so you can forge your own path forward in the confident knowledge that by doing so, you're not going to make mistakes and lay people off. So we just started to look for the causes of failure. And ironically, it's led us to be able to deliver this now proven methodology. It's now been approved in the States as a as a recognized teaching methodology on how mm-hmm. to avoid failure. And rather than looking at success, we simply say, well, if we can keep you in the game, and we can prevent you from making the mistakes that me and many others have done, then in actual fact, you've, you've got more of a chance to be able to forge your own path and decide what you want to do going forward. And we've now delivered, yeah, this, to, we've now delivered this to just over 115,000 businesses. Now that's a lot. 
and and one of your books is kind of a, a summary of that. Is it the uh, of the more of the things not to do? I seem to remember reading. Is it the, the uh, oh wait? It, you know, it's the, the Add a Zero book as well. Yeah, this. So the book came out last year. Yeah, at the very end of last year, just before Christmas, um, during lockdown. And predominantly, um, the book is almost the backstory and the three major faults that we find in eighty six percent of businesses that will automatically create a glass ceiling for them if they don't address. So we've identified three major flaws in more than 85% of businesses across the UK, in doesn't matter what sector or industry. And then we've talked to people about what they are, how they are, why they happen, what's to do to overcome them in order to be able to help people at least build the right foundations that regardless of what size of business they grow to, they're not going to get to a glass ceiling or a bottleneck, which as they try and break through causes problems in the business. Wow, so it's important stuff. Before the book, our aim and our mission was to be able to help and support 10,000 people. And ironically, since the book, somebody says, surely you need to add a zeros to that. And it went from <laughs> 10,000 to 100,000. It subsequently got to a million because we've already delivered it to 115,000. So the, the project itself is inspiring, but the, the inspiration to keep on this journey of, you know, from 10,000 to a, a million, is it just your natural personality that's inspired you through that or is it just the accumulation of your life experience because you're very passionate about this and you're making great strides but what's your fuel for this one ian thanks for asking i've got to be honest with you it's not even a personal it's not even that personal to me it's it's, it's almost a calling as such when we first delivered at a zero and we started to test this on other businesses to see the impact it had on them there was just less than a million people unemployed and seeking work in the uk And yet there were nearly 6 million SME business owners in the UK. So I came up with this concept. If we could teach a million business owners how to significantly and sustainably grow their business sufficiently that they have to take on at least one new member of staff because they're growing and they need more resources, then collectively we could eradicate unemployment in the UK by providing employment opportunities for anybody and everybody that is seeking employment. And that's our true mission. That's what we're aiming to try and work towards, is to be able to create a 0% unemployment necessity in this country, that there is more jobs out there than there are people seeking work. And we can do that by helping every single business owner grow sufficiently that they're ready to take on at least one new member of staff, even if it's just to replace them so they can go and enjoy life whilst the business continues to grow and develop. Wow, that's a beautiful motivation. Thank you for sharing. And now it's time for quickfire inspiration. Now we're on to the quickfire inspiration section. So it can be a short answer or a longer one, whatever. There's five sections. So what is your most, or one of your most inspiring films? For me, and I'm a film buff, I love film, but for me, it has to be Sam Childers and Machine Gun Preacher. I was introduced it about 12, maybe 10 years ago. And I might have watched it at least 10 times since then. And it brings something, it's a true story, and it brings something raw to me every single time I watch it. Your most inspiring aspect of nature? Ironically, it's just to be out in it. There's something really quite grounding about being able to take your shoes and socks off and put your feet on grass. And just to be able to be reconnected with perhaps even damp grass, just to be able to to sit and absorb, as it were, what this wonderful thing that, that is called life and the world ironically in my in my darkest days in the in the hospital some of the times that i i was at my worst i simply went out from the ward and sat on the lawn 
and just ran my fingers through the grass. And it was just enough to be able to say, everything that you hear is just temporary and you're going to be able to get through it. Thank you. Your most inspiring aspect of design or style? I love architecture and I can't necessarily suggest that I love modern or, or old or, or anything. I love architecture. I, I love the fact that someone can have a vision, write it on a piece of paper or draw it on a piece of paper and then subsequently it goes on to be created and it stands there for the test of time. But just being able to look at someone's, to be able to take an idea from a concept in your mind and to be able to transfer it onto paper and then subsequently turn it into brick and concrete and wood and glass and steel. For me, I get huge amount from people's ideas being visualised. Great, great. Thanks. Your most inspiring song or one of them? What do you sing before you're going out? <laughs> so I'm fortunate enough that my father paid for me uh, when I was 14, 15 to go to my first ever U2 concert in London okay. at the time. And one of the, although Sunday Bloody Sunday was the album that it was, there was a song called I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And I probably play that 20, maybe 30 times a month, usually far too loud, usually singing completely out of tune. But for me, it just inspires me to say, it doesn't matter what you've got, there's always something else coming up. And it's always about being able to push and drive forward. Thank you. And the last one is uh, most inspiring aspect of travel. Might be a way of travel or a place. I had the very fortunate opportunities to be able to visit Bermuda two or three times now. And from just coming out of the cloud and coming down towards this tiny little island in the middle of the ocean, away from everywhere else, it's a three-hour flight from any other country. And it sits there, this tiny little island. And as you come through the cloud and down to it, it's almost like Joseph's technical of the dream coat. It's just a, an, a mass of turquoise sea and then this most incredible, colourful and beautiful country. And then the people are nice and the food's great and the service is amazing. For me, Bermuda's possibly a second, uh, the aspiration of a second home. It's, it's almost where I feel most alive and most grounded. Thank you. That's a really exciting description. I, when I was a little kid, I went, but I, I can't remember a great deal. So, yeah, maybe it's time to go back. We're getting close to the end. Just, I mean, there's, yeah, I've got to get to the, the closing question, really, which is what is most right in the world? Never has anyone on the planet had more of an opportunity than right now. We have the means to communicate with almost every other person on the planet. Choose what you say to people wisely and then share your message with the world because we've all got something to say and we've all got, all got an audience to be able to hear it. Thank you. That's great. And what is the next book on your reading list or your current one? Literally, yesterday afternoon, Atomic Habits by James Clear arrived from my Amazon collection, my wish list. I've just finished reading Extreme Ownership by Jocko Wilnick, which was a great read. But in the book, he recommends Atomic Habits. So I ordered that at the weekend and it arrived yesterday afternoon. Okay, well, I hope you get a lot out of that. And for people who want to get in touch with you, uh, how do they do that? On all the usual channels, I'm usually um, on LinkedIn at least once or twice a day, J. Allen UK or J. Allen My True North. We're on Facebook under My True North UK. We're on Twitter as My True North UK. The website is www.mytruenorth.biz or the book's website if people want a copy of Add a Zero is simply addazero.co.uk. Brilliant. And J is spelled J-A-Y, isn't it? It is indeed. J-A-Y-A-L-L-E-N. Perfect. Thank you ever so much for your time today and uh, yeah, have a great week. Ian, thanks for the opportunity. God bless you, my friend. Thank you. Thanks. Jay really has lived so much, so many things that I've never experienced and his wealth of wisdom. Here's his top 10 hits of inspiration. One, 
it's how you play the hand that you are dealt that really counts. Remember Jay's grandmother Joy. Two, be inspired by people who are giving their life and limb for their mission. Three, it's important to realize the power that a mental health issue can have over your physical well-being. So it's important to look after your mental health. Four, whatever you're going through right now, if you have a big perspective, it's just a temporary problem. Five, if you're feeling down, first, acknowledge that there's something blocking you from moving forward. And secondly, ask for help. There really is a wealth of help out there. Six, always be ready to listen if someone asks you for help. Seven, is there a book that wants to come through you? Eight, are you in the busyness of business or are you in the business of business? Make sure you block out some thinking time at least once a week. Nine, barriers disappear when you identify a common interest, even in situations as serious as a war zone. Ten, which different seat do I need to be sitting in to be able to look at this issue in a different way, to find a lesson within it and to help us move forward? 11. If you get caught up in the moment, take long deep breaths and realize that you can do that at any time and that you have been given another chance. 12. Break problems down into bite-sized chunks and say, what can I do today? If necessary, just say, today I'm here, I'm alive, I am surviving and that is good enough for today. 13. Don't leave a legacy, live a legacy. Choose to live your best life with the best attitude, no matter what the circumstances are, so as to inspire others, thereby living a legacy. Wow, that's a deep one. 14. Instead of setting up a brand new business, have you considered maybe a shortcut of buying an existing one? And 15. Finally, learn from how other businesses failed to make sure that your business doesn't do the same. Watch out for news on our new group. Thank you everyone for listening today. Your kind attention is really appreciated and valued. If you feel some inspiration from today's episode, please share it. And please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you wish, leave us some comments. In your comments, please let us know any inspirational subjects you'd like us to cover. As I aim to build a bank of both inspiration and stories of events that inspired close connection between groups of people. If you have something to share in this space, send me an email at inspiringteamhuman at gmail.com. Watch out for the next two episodes where we'll be speaking to Jenny Long, inspiring mother who's helping others to escape the rat race, who's an expert at property investment overseas. Looking forward to getting down on the detail with her. And Kelly Krizik, the founder of New Earth Now, a regenerative development consulting company. Kelly's true purpose in life is to bring about revolutionary societal change by facilitating greater connection among people and the planet. Previously, she had a background in finance, insurance, investments and real estate. I've really seen her at work and this is going to be an amazing interview. Thanks again. Look forward to seeing you next week for another boost of inspiration. Thanks to Ben Sound for the music.